Hey guys, it's been far too long since I've seen you all, and I am excited to announce a podcast meetup in 2024 here in San Jose, California. And I'm super excited to announce that I'll be co-hosting the meetup on February 22nd with Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y podcast. Yep, the boys from Kansas City are coming in town to meet you. Mark your calendar to come out, have a drink, take some pics, and talk true crime with us at the V-Bar at Hotel Valencia on Santana Row in San Jose. Get all the information on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Follow our social media for updates and special announcements as we get closer to the date. Links to all our social media channels can also be found on our website. We can't wait to meet you. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Every year in January, I take one infamous case and go in-depth in a month-long series. This time, I've chosen a case that began in 1977 and spanned over seven years. But the memory of this case has lasted far longer. The kidnapping of Colleen Stan became famously, and chillingly, known as the Girl in the Box case. It's an incredible story of unprecedented evil, but also one of faith, strength, and the courage of a young girl to survive a horrific nightmare at the hands of the worst kind of predator. I'll give you fair warning about Colleen Stan's story. The details can be very difficult to hear, but I believe you'll be glad you listened to these next three episodes as a reminder that the human spirit can overcome incredible challenges that seem impossible to survive. Colleen Stan is living proof of this fact. This is part one of a three-part series, Colleen Stan, The Girl in the Box. At age 20, Colleen Stan was trying to put down roots and start her life as an adult. She'd recently moved to a new state to live with friends, was working odd jobs, and had dated a bit, but she hadn't really launched her life yet. She also missed home. She was born on New Year's Eve 1956 and grew up in Riverside, California. Now she was living in Eugene, Oregon, over 900 miles away from her family in Southern California. She didn't have the time or the money to go home in May of 1977, but decided to visit a friend in the northern California town of Westwood, about 350 miles away. It was her friend's birthday that weekend, and Colleen was going to surprise her. She thought it would lift her spirits to visit an old friend and return to California for a short trip. She set out early on Thursday, May 17th, to make the five- or six-hour drive to Westwood. But when she got in her car, it wouldn't start. Not deterred, Colleen grabbed her purse and sleeping bag from her car and asked her roommates to drop her off at the I-5 freeway on-ramp. She'd hitchhike, she decided. In 1977, hitchhiking, even by women traveling alone, was common. On any given day, especially on the West Coast, you could see young men and women with their thumbs out hitching rides with commuters and commercial truck drivers 
as their primary form of transportation. Colleen had frequently hitchhiked alone and with friends in her teens and felt she knew how to spot a safe ride and avoid danger. In a moment, I'll give you details of Colleen Stan's life up to this point. But first I want to explain that Stan is not her birth name. She was briefly married, and Stan is her married name. Her birth name has been kept private to protect her family's privacy. In researching this case, I've tried to gather my impressions of Colleen before she became a victim of this infamous crime. She strikes me as independent and free-spirited, with a giving and generous nature. She also has an open heart and a trusting nature. In some ways, she was quite wide-eyed and naive, but still possessed a very strong will and great courage. She experienced losses very early in her life, but it didn't cause her to grow jaded or depressed. If anything, it seemed to motivate her to embrace life even more fully, and she remained excited about her future. I guess you could call her a hopeless romantic, but also tough and resilient. Colleen's parents, Jack and Evelyn, divorced when she was three. She had two sisters, Janice and Bonnie Sue. Both of her parents remarried, and two half-sisters and a half-brother were eventually added to Colleen's family. Her parents remained living in Riverside, California, just blocks from one another. Riverside is part of the greater Los Angeles area, about 50 miles southeast of downtown Los Angeles. In the 1970s, its population sat at about 150,000 people. Colleen was an average student, but had a passion for writing poetry, that romantic side I mentioned. She was also creative and liked to make handmade gifts and cards, which she presented to family and friends. At 16, Colleen met and fell in love with 22-year-old Tom Stan. They wanted to get married, but as she was still a minor, Colleen had to get permission from her parents to wed. They finally agreed, and she and Tom married in Las Vegas, Nevada, on December 12, 1973 less than three weeks before her 17th birthday. Tom was from Ohio and moved his new bride to his home state soon after the wedding. Maybe Colleen was homesick, too young to be a wife, or perhaps she and Tom didn't know each other well enough to be married, or perhaps it was a combination of all three. But the marriage quickly fell apart. Within a year, Colleen and Tom split up, and she returned to Riverside. Upon her return, she took and passed a high school equivalency exam. She began taking odd jobs and dated a few boys, but was still dealing with the breakup of her marriage and wasn't ready to get serious with anyone. Colleen met a couple from Oregon, Bob and Alice, and they soon became fast friends. They had a two-year-old son, and Colleen loved children. They were very fond of Colleen, and when they learned that she wanted a change of scenery and a fresh start, they invited her to Oregon. She took them up on their offer and moved to Eugene, becoming the roommate. She was getting by taking odd jobs in the spring of 1977 when she decided to visit her friend in California. She caught the first ride at about 11 a.m. on May 17th and was happy that the driver who offered her a ride could drop her within 100 miles of Westwood. By 4 p.m., Colleen had reached the town of Red Bluff, California, just off Highway 5. She needed to hitch a ride west on Highway 36 to get to Westwood. She stuck her thumb out to flag down a ride going in that direction. One car stopped with a couple inside. Colleen turned that ride down because they were only going a short distance. The next car that stopped was full of young guys. She thought it was too risky, so she declined their offer as well. The third vehicle that stopped was a four-door blue Dodge Colt. Peering inside, she saw a man wearing glasses who was at the wheel. A woman sat in the passenger seat, 
and Colleen asked her how far they were going. They said they were headed to the town of Mineral, which would take her within a few miles of Westwood. The woman was holding a baby. Colleen decided this young family was safe to accept a ride from. She thanked them, tossed her sleeping bag in the back seat, and climbed in. She had no idea that this would be the biggest mistake of her life. The couple she'd accepted a ride from, Cameron and Janice Hooker, were dangerous predators who'd been on the hunt for a female victim for some time. And now they had Colleen Stan trapped in their web. Cameron Hooker was born in Alturas, California, on November 5, 1953. By all accounts, his family life was stable and loving, which would make his later actions all the more baffling. His father, Harold, had worked in the construction trade and had been employed in sawmills. His mother, Lorena, was a stay-at-home mom who dedicated her time to raising her two boys, Cameron and his younger brother, Dexter. The family didn't have a lot of money and frequently relocated for Harold to find work but there was no history of abuse, neglect, or other dysfunction in the Hooker household. The Hookers had a good marriage and were loving parents. Cameron was described as a quiet but happy child. The family finally settled permanently in Red Bluff, California, when Cameron was 16. He attended Red Bluff High School. He was unusually tall and very thin. He wore horn-rimmed glasses and was uninterested in playing sports or joining school clubs and he didn't form close friendships with his classmates. As a result, he went largely unnoticed at Red Bluff High. He also didn't excel at academics. When he graduated in 1972, he was only semi-literate. The only class he did well in was shop class. He loved to build things and aspired to have a career in the construction trade. Upon graduation, he followed in his father's footsteps and began working in a sawmill. He was employed at the Diamond International Lumber Mill in Red Bluff. Cameron Hooker still kept to himself, and while his co-workers thought him pleasant enough, he didn't have any close friends, go out with co-workers for drinks, or invite anyone to his home. He also didn't appear to date. In place of an active social life, Cameron Hooker had a fully formed fantasy life. He didn't date because he had yet to meet the woman who would fulfill these fantasies. He found her in 1973, when he became acquainted with 15-year-old Janice Lashley. Janice's family moved from San Jose to Red Bluff when she was a child. Her father was a blue-collar worker who worked long hours to provide for his wife and four daughters. Her mother also worked outside of the home. Janice, the youngest of the children, was mainly raised by her older sister, Lisa. Janice was prone to epileptic seizures as a child. She was shy and awkward, and her illness caused her to feel even more like an outsider with her peers. Janice thought her parents ignored her because of her illness. She even reported that her father kept his distance because he accused her of being possessed by the devil. Whether this is true or just Janice's perception is unclear. She also said her mother was strict and not a warm person, and that she always felt disapproval and rejection from her family members. Janice grew up to be an insecure girl, with frizzy brown hair and shy brown eyes, covered with wire-rimmed glasses. By the time Cameron Hooker was in his late teens, he was hooked on hardcore pornography and fantasized about having a woman at his disposal who, quote, couldn't say no. His predilections towards violent sexual fantasies involving rape and torture would cause him to become a predator who could sniff out the weak and vulnerable. 
he immediately sensed Janice's insecurity and need to feel loved, and preyed upon these emotions. Janice met Cameron in 1973, when she was in the ninth grade. He was 19, and Janice described him as tall and good-looking. She also said he was the first boy who had ever treated her well. She was immediately smitten by the lumber mill worker, who picked her up in his car and took her to the movies and to inexpensive dinners. It wasn't long before Hooker knew that this shy young girl who felt unloved and unwanted would do anything to keep him interested in her. He began introducing her to his sexual fantasies. He and Janice began a sexual relationship, but conventional sex didn't excite him. He told her that she would make him happy if she allowed him to tie her up. Not knowing what he had in mind, she reluctantly agreed. Janice would later recall that the first time she let her boyfriend act out his sexual fantasies with her was not only strange, but painful and degrading as well. Hooker took her out to the woods, stripped her naked, and suspended her from a tree with leather handcuffs. At first, Janice refused to comply, but after he told her he'd done this with his other girlfriends, she agreed. She hated the whole painful experience, but Hooker was so grateful afterward that she continued to give in to his increasingly frequent demands for these bondage sessions. He soon introduced whips into their sex play and beat her with them while she was suspended. The whip stung terribly and left welts on her skin. Still, she didn't want to lose him, and he was so good to her afterward, Janice recalled, that she gave in to Hooker's suggestions for ever more dangerous and humiliating sexual acts. He tied her up in more complicated and painful ways, took photos of her while bound, gagged, and nude, called her degrading names, and once even nearly drowned her by dunking her head into a creek. Embarrassed, Janice kept these activities secret from everyone. She was also worried that if her parents ever found out, they'd forbid her from seeing Cameron. And Janice had decided that she was in love and wanted to marry him. They dated for a year and a half, and Janice was so afraid he'd grow bored with her and stop seeing her that she falsely claimed she was pregnant. Hooker agreed to marry her, and after her parents were told about the pregnancy, they gave their permission for the wedding. On January 18, 1975, Cameron and Janice married in Reno, Nevada. She was 16, he was 20. She dropped out of high school, and she and her new husband rented a cheap apartment in Red Bluff. Hooker continued to work at the lumber mill. His violent fantasies continued to escalate, and he subjected his wife to more abusive practices. He practiced bondage on her, attempting to recreate photos he'd seen in underground BDSM publications. He choked her until she passed out and waited until she came to to do it again. Hooker would also become violent when angry. After an argument with Janice, who soon after the marriage must have claimed that she had a miscarriage because no mention of the pregnancy shows up in later accounts, Hooker pulled a knife on her and held it to her throat, asking her if she wanted to die. Janice would say she loved her husband but also feared him. He showed her a horrifying photo in an underground porn magazine that depicted a woman being crucified. He told her if he ever killed her, that's how he'd do it. After two years of increasingly painful and bizarre sexual demands by her husband, Janice began to refuse to comply. He then shared a long-held secret fantasy. He told his wife he wanted to bring a third person into their home, a woman who couldn't say no, he explained. Janice was shocked and hurt at his suggestion. She also worried that he was telling her he wanted to leave her, and she couldn't let that happen. She believed he was the only one who'd ever truly loved her, and she'd be devastated if she lost him. 
Then he told her that by bringing in another woman, she'd no longer have to participate in the more painful and demanding sexual acts he craved. The other woman would take her place. Janice finally agreed, although hesitantly, and with two conditions. The first was that he had to promise her that he would not engage in sexual intercourse with anyone else. The second was that she wanted to have a baby. He agreed to both conditions. Hooker's first plan was to advertise for a woman willing to engage in these practices. He'd seen ads placed in the back of BDSM magazines and thought about running one, but he soon nixed that idea, citing the ad's cost and that the woman would probably want to be paid. He began making plans to kidnap a woman and turn her into his sex slave. In 1976, Cameron and Janice Hooker moved to a small two-bedroom house with the basement, located at 1140 Oak Street in Red Bluff. Their landlords, an older couple, the Lettys, lived next door. They rented the house for two main reasons. The first was that Janice was pregnant, and they needed the second room. She would give birth to a baby girl the fall after they moved to Oak Street. The second reason was that Cameron wanted a house with a basement to construct his long-dreamed-of dungeon. He now put his construction skills to use. He'd not realized his goal of working in the construction industry, but recalled enough of what he learned in his high school shop classes to build some basic devices of his own imagining. Hooker couldn't read beyond simple sentences, but the photos he found in bondage magazines gave him an idea of what he should build to equip his dungeon. He first constructed a rack made of lumber he'd pinched from his workplace. It was a simple platform with eye hooks screwed into each corner. To them were attached leather handcuffs. He also attached eye hooks to a beam in the basement ceiling. The most terrifying of the items of torture Hooker built was the head box. It was a square box constructed from plywood, about the size of a large hat box. It weighed approximately 20 pounds. Between the double walls of the box, Hooker placed insulation. The inside of the wooden box was covered with carpet pieces. The two half of the box attached by metal hinges could be opened. A circle was cut out of the bottom, and when the box was opened, they formed two semicircles. The box was intended to be placed over the head before being latched closed with the hole at the bottom closing around the neck. It would serve not only as a torture device, but because it was insulated, it could muffle the sounds of a person's screams. Hooker began stalking women around town and even took some photographs of potential victims using a telephoto lens but he'd not found the right conditions in which to snatch a woman off the street without being seen. He'd tried picking up hitchhikers, but women were more cautious than even a few years before and often rejected rides with solo male drivers. So in 1977, he began taking his wife Janice with him to hunt for a victim. After work, he'd pick her and the baby up and they'd drive around Red Bluff and other small towns in Tehama County along the Interstate 5 corridor. On May 17th, Cameron, Janice, and the baby were in the car by 4 p.m. After about a half an hour, they spotted a young woman with light brown hair wearing a backpack standing at the crossroad of Interstate 5 and Highway 36 with her thumb out. They slowed down and asked her where she was headed. She told them Westwood, and they said they were headed to Mineral, which would get her about halfway there. She thanked them and hopped into the back seat. They asked her her name, and she said Colleen. The woman said it was nice to meet her, but didn't introduce herself. 
In the back seat next to her, Colleen saw a strange wooden box, but not knowing what it could be, she didn't pay much attention to it. When they stopped at a gas station, she took her backpack and went into the bathroom to change her shirt. While he was driving, Colleen saw the male driver looking at her in the rearview mirror several times. It kind of creeped her out, but she didn't feel afraid of him. He was kind of nerdy with big glasses and was really thin, and he didn't look like someone who could easily overpower her. Also, he was with his wife and baby, so what kind of threat could he be, she thought. She put it out of her mind. But while she was in the gas station bathroom, she got a strong urge to put distance between herself and the couple in the car. Run, her intuition screamed at her. She saw herself jumping out of the bathroom window and getting as far away from there as possible. But seconds later, she told herself she was just being paranoid and once more dismissed the feeling. She returned to the car. While they drove, the man and woman began talking about some ice caves in the area they'd heard about. They asked Colleen if she wouldn't mind if they stopped for a quick look. It was just a short detour off the road, they said. Colleen just wanted to get to her destination, but she felt she couldn't object, so she said that would be fine. They soon turned the car off the highway and down a dirt road. They drove about a mile headed in the direction of Lassen National Forest. No other vehicles were around, and Colleen wondered how far they were going. Suddenly, they stopped the car. Janice got out with the baby and walked towards a small stream. Colleen stayed sitting in the back seat. Suddenly, the door opened, and the man lunged toward her. Before she could react, she felt a knife pressed against her throat. Are you going to do what I say, he asked. She nodded yes, stunned into silence. He ordered her to place her hands above her head. He took handcuffs from his pocket and locked her hands behind her back. He pulled out a strip of material and blindfolded her. She then felt something being placed around her head. It was a leather strap that went over the top of her head and under her chin, making her unable to open her mouth. Her ankles were tied together with rope. She felt something heavy placed over her head. It was the head box. He put it on her and pinched the box closed around her neck. She couldn't see anything, and the box was tight around her head. She could feel the carpet on the inside walls brushing against her face. She immediately began to panic, feeling like she couldn't breathe, but he yelled at her to shut up if she didn't want him to cut her throat. She did her best to calm her breathing so she wouldn't suffocate. He forced her to lie down in the back seat and covered her up using the sleeping bag she'd brought with her. She could hear the muffled sounds of the woman returning to the car with the baby. The car began moving again. After a few minutes, it stopped. Colleen couldn't see what was happening, but Cameron and Janice Hooker had stopped for fast food and sat eating it in a deserted parking lot. They were waiting for it to get dark before they returned home. When they got to the house, Hooker led Colleen through the back door after untying her feet. He took the head box off, but kept the blindfold, gag, and handcuffs on her as he led her downstairs to the basement. Colleen Stan found herself trapped in a nightmare. She'd accepted a ride from a normal-looking couple with a baby, and now she was gagged, handcuffed, and blindfolded in what felt like a basement dungeon. The man had stopped talking, and the woman was now gone. Without speaking, the man took the handcuffs off and replaced them with leather cuffs that were tight around her wrists. 
He had her step up on a box of some type and pulled her arms over her head. He hooked each of her cupped wrists to the ceiling, spread wide apart. He then stripped off her clothes. Colleen was shivering with fright. Then the box she was standing on was kicked out from under her, and she felt excruciating waves of pain from her wrists and shoulders that radiated down her back. She was hanging by her wrists from the ceiling, naked, blindfolded, and with the leather head strap holding her mouth shut so she couldn't cry out. She kicked, trying to get a foothold on something to take the weight off her wrists and arms that felt like they were being pulled out of her shoulder sockets. As she struggled and tried to scream, she felt a sharp pain in her back. The man was whipping her and told her to shut up and quit moving. He pushed the box back under her feet. It was an ice chest. She could barely reach it standing on tiptoe. Still, it relieved some of the pressure off her arms. She then heard the woman come downstairs. After a couple of minutes, she heard strange sounds. She soon realized the couple was having sex just under her feet. What the hell was going on? Colleen screamed in her head. What kind of freaks were these? And what were they planning to do to her? Would they rape her? Kill her? Her body shook uncontrollably with fright and pain. She tried her best to keep from losing her toehold on the box under her feet. Finally, she heard the woman go back up the stairs. Suddenly, the ice chest was kicked out from under her, and the total weight of her body once again pulled at her wrists and shoulders. After a few more minutes, he pushed the chest back under her feet and unhooked her from the ceiling. Colleen barely had time to register relief before facing another horror. It was a contraption constructed by her captor. Hooker called it the body box. It was square and stood about three feet high. One end was open. He pushed Colleen into the opening with her back facing him. He took off the leather cuffs and placed chains around her wrists and locked them to the roof of the box. She barely had enough room to sit up. He removed the leather strap from around her jaw and she was finally able to speak. She begged him to let her go. He ignored her. He then placed the head box back over her head and snapped it closed. The head box was somehow hooked to the roof of the box she now sat in. Its weight was supported, but she couldn't move her head. She panicked, thinking she would suffocate, and began kicking the sides of the box. Hooker returned, grabbed her ankles, and tied them to the sides of the box so she couldn't kick. Then he left her there all night. The next morning, Hooker returned to the basement. He took Colleen out of the box and laid her on the rack. He shackled her wrists and ankles so she was spread eagle on the board. He put the head box back on and left her there for the rest of the day. She'd had no food or water for over 24 hours. That night, he returned, took the head box off, and let her sit up. He gave her a meal of potatoes and water. After she ate, he hung her from the ceiling again for a while before he put the head box back on. At no time did he take the blindfold off of her, even while she ate. He allowed her to use a bedpan and then stretched her back on the rack with the head box on until the following day. Colleen's daily routine continued for the next five months. She was kept blindfolded, naked, and chained in the basement. Most of the time, she also wore the head box. She was given only one small meal a day and very little water. Almost every night, Hooker came down to the basement, hung her from the ceiling, and whipped her until she almost passed out from the pain. He didn't talk to her, adding to her sensory deprivation.
she was left in extreme isolation, immobile for hours, and then subjected to torturous pain. After about a week of being held captive, Colleen heard the sounds of something being constructed in the basement. It would become her home for the next four and a half months. Hooker built a coffin-like box out of wood. It was about three feet wide and six and a half feet long. It was double-walled with a lid that could be opened on the top. Once it was ready, Colleen was placed in the box with a long chain around her neck locked to her wrist and ankle chains. She was made to lie in the box on her sleeping bag. She was relieved that he finally removed the head box, but he added wax earplugs in her ears so she could only hear muffled sounds. She continued to wear the blindfold 24 hours a day and was naked. From May until October, Colleen was left in the coffin box in the basement. She was allowed to leave it only once a day to eat, drink water, and use the bedpan, always in the view of her captor. As spring turned into summer and the days grew hot, the heat in the box was stifling and made it even more difficult for Colleen to breathe. She sweat through the sleeping bag below her. She was still blindfolded and could only tell approximately what time of day it was by the change in temperature. Hooker finally cut holes and placed a blower in the side of the box to circulate the air. But it did nothing to cool it off. It only blew the hot air around Colleen. And the constant sound of the blower sometimes made Colleen feel like she was going mad. Hooker had finally realized his sick and evil fantasy of having a woman who couldn't say no, and he subjected Colleen to all his twisted desires. Almost daily, he hung her from the ceiling, whipped her, tied straps around her chest to constrict her breathing, shocked her with electrical cords, and used a heat lamp to burn and blister her genitals. The only thing she had not been subjected to, at his wife's insistence, was rape. He took photographs of these torture sessions, developing them himself in a basement darkroom he'd built. Colleen was not allowed to shower or brush her teeth for three months. Finally, Hooker tied her hands behind her back and led her upstairs still blindfolded. He placed duct tape around her mouth and took her to the bathroom. After tying her legs to a broomstick, he dunked her head into the tub, submerging it underwater. He held her down until he thought she'd drown. Then he pulled her out for a moment and repeated this torturous bathing ritual over two dozen times. He called Janice in to wash Colleen's filthy and matted hair. But she took scissors and cut off large chunks when she couldn't get the tangles out. Colleen's hair had once been thick and long, a shiny auburn color. It was now about five inches shorter due to Janice's butchering and was thin and dull. Colleen had once been curvy, but had lost a significant amount of weight due to her starvation diet and being constantly confined in a sweat box. In the summer, the temperature in the box would rise to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. By the fall, Colleen had lost over 20 pounds and had stopped menstruating. Colleen's stand was last seen leaving Eugene, Oregon, on May 17, 1977. Alice, her roommate, was the first to sound the alarm when she didn't arrive home by the 21st, as expected. She called the friend whom Colleen had traveled to visit, but she hadn't seen or heard from her. Colleen was making the visit as a surprise for her friend, so she wasn't even aware she was supposed to be in California. Colleen's family in Riverside was called and told she was missing. They filed a missing persons report with the Eugene Police Department on May 23rd. But since she could have gone missing anywhere between Eugene and Northern California, all the police could do was put out a description to see if anything turned up. 
Colleen Stan was described as standing five foot six inches tall, with long, straight, light brown hair, with blue eyes and freckles. Her weight was listed as 135 pounds. As spring turned into early summer, her parents traveled to Eugene and went to the police station to try and urge them to do anything they could to help them find their daughter. They then went to her apartment and picked up her belongings from Alice. They returned to Riverside feeling dejected, but were determined not to give up. Colleen was out there somewhere, they knew. They just needed one break to track her down and bring her home. Her father hired a private detective, but he wasn't able to make much progress either. All her family could do now was wait and pray. Cameron Hooker continued to go to his job at the lumber mill every day, while Janice stayed home with the baby and Colleen locked in the basement. Janice did her best to ignore the horror playing out underneath her feet while attempting to live a normal life as a wife and mother. She had been complicit in the kidnapping of Colleen Stan and was acting as her jailer while her husband was gone. She felt a great sense of guilt for her part in the young girl's torturous ordeal at the hands of her husband, but did nothing to stop it. The truth was, Janice was conflicted. She would say she felt sorry for what was happening to Colleen, but on the other hand, she also felt jealous of her. She saw Colleen as a threat to her marriage and wondered when her husband would break his promise to her not to have sex with the girl. As far as she knew, so far, he'd kept this promise. That didn't mean he didn't force Colleen to participate in other types of sexual activities. In his mind, it was just sexual intercourse that was forbidden. Most of Colleen's hours were spent confined in the box, unable to see or hear anything. She would remove herself from her nightmare during the long hours sweating inside the box, by daydreaming about her family, her life before she was kidnapped, and the things she would do if she were ever freed. She also began to pray, pleading to God for hours on end to help her survive her ordeal, both physically and mentally, and find a way to help her get free. Janice was increasingly anxious about being left in the house with their captive. She constantly worried they'd be found out, and she'd go to prison and be separated from her baby. Unable to take the stress, Janice moved out of the house later that summer. She took the baby and moved in with her sister in San Jose. She was hired to work at a tech company and commuted home each weekend to Red Bluff. Now there was no one there to let Colleen out of the box until Cameron Hooker got home from work. With Janice gone, he ramped up the torture on Colleen, forcing her to spend more time out of the box and subjected to more painful sessions, being hung, bound, shocked, strangled, and burned with a heat lamp. He also forced her to copulate him orally. By the fall, Janice returned home for good. She missed her husband and was tired of commuting three and a half hours each way every weekend. When fall came and the days grew cooler, Colleen was finally given something to wear after her repeated requests. One day, Hooker returned the Pendleton shirt she wore the day she was kidnapped. Colleen had one other win that fall. She finally learned the names of her captors. She remained blindfolded day and night, but could see through a small opening at the bottom of the blindfold. When Hooker's back was turned to her, she could see the name Cameron stamped into the leather in the back of his belt. She also heard him call his wife Jan. Colleen was let out after five months locked in the box in the basement. Hooker had built a triangular-shaped box that fit under the stairs. He called this the workshop. Colleen was now locked up inside it during the daytime hours. 
She was unshackled, but still blindfolded for the first month. After six months in captivity, she was finally allowed to remove the blindfold while she was inside the box. Her eyes were extremely sensitive to light, even the dim light in the box under the stairs, but her eyes slowly adjusted. Hooker made her put it back on before he took her out of the box so she couldn't see his face. She was immensely grateful to have been moved out of the box and into the workshop where she could sit in a chair and do something useful to occupy her hands and mind. She was given small projects to do for Janice, shelling walnuts or macrame or crochet projects. Cameron and Janice would take the items to the San Jose flea market, a large open-air market where people came to buy items like cheap electronics and clothing, craft items, and used items of all sorts from individual vendors. They sold the craft projects Colleen and Janice made for extra income. In January 1978, just after Colleen spent her 21st birthday locked in the Hooker's Red Bluff home, Cameron Hooker found an article in a BDSM publication detailing a slave contract that was created by an alleged sex slave trade organization. A poor reader, Hooker had his wife read it to him. He grew excited by the idea of having Colleen sign a contract, making her his permanent sex slave. He got to work creating his own version of the contract, using a rented typewriter to make it look official. On January 25th, Hooker took Colleen out of the box and sat her down at the kitchen table. To her surprise, he allowed her to see his face for the first time since the car ride on the day she was kidnapped. He was thinner than she'd imagined. He was tall, but didn't look powerfully built, although she knew he was strong. He placed an article in front of her and told her to read it. It described a slave trading organization known only as The Company. The article claimed that it was a worldwide organization that sold women who'd been kidnapped to work as sex slaves. He told Colleen that the company had found out that he was holding her, and now he was required to register her as a slave. He said he had to pay a $1,500 fee to be allowed to keep her. If he didn't do so, they would come and take her away. He told her horrifying stories of even worse tortures women were subjected to when sold on the black market by the company. Sometimes women who were purchased from the company were killed. Their murders turned into pornographic snuff films. He told her that she had it easy compared to the women the company sold, and he claimed he had talked them into allowing him to keep her as long as he paid the fee. But that wasn't the end of it, he explained. He told Colleen the company would be watching their every move. If she tried to run away or didn't comply fully with his demands, they could come at any time and take her to be sold. If she ran away and they caught her, they'd subject her to days or weeks of agonizing torture before they slowly killed her and disposed of her body, he said. Hooker said the company had already found information on her family and were also watching their home. They were also in danger if she ever tried to contact them or ran away and went home. He then presented a copy of the slave contract for her to sign. It stated that she agreed that her body belonged to Hooker to do with as he pleased. The document listed Colleen's slave name as K, not the name spelled K-A-Y, but just the initial K. Cameron and Janice were listed as Michael and Janet Powers. Colleen was now to be called K Powers. Before she signed, she told him she knew his name was Cameron and asked why he was referred to as Michael Powers in the document. 
he said that his slave trader alias was Michael Powers. She signed the document while he stood over her. He then told her she'd be forever identified by a slave collar she must wear at all times around her neck. The first one he fastened on her that day was just a tight-fitting metallic collar, golden color, made of fabric. That soon frayed and tattered, and he later replaced it with a metal collar that he welded shut around her neck. As a slave, he told Colleen, she was to obey his every order. She was also to address him as master and Janice as ma'am. He also told her a story regarding his wife. He said that Jan had once been a slave and had attempted to run away. She was captured and returned. As her punishment, she was placed on a rack and her legs were stretched and bent in a grotesque and painful way. Janice had recently undergone knee surgery to correct issues she'd had since she was a child, so this sounded believable to Colleen. He said he'd met Janice at a BDSM club called The Dungeon, where she'd been forced to work. She was only 15 years old, he claimed, and he felt sorry for her. So he bought her from the company and married her. Colleen believed Hooker's claims about the company. She was most fearful of any harm coming to her family, so she now resigned herself to the fact that she would never be free. She couldn't run away and place her family in harm, she thought. She was told that the more she complied with her master's demands, the easier things would be on her. Hooker told her that she should dedicate herself to becoming a, quote, good slave. Colleen hoped that if she did so, she might gain more freedom and would not be subjected as often to the torture sessions. With Colleen now living under the threat of the company, Hooker believed he now had her under his complete control. As a result, he did allow her some freedom. She was now allowed out of the basement and not locked in all day in the workshop. Instead, she could walk freely around the house helping Janice with chores. She could also use the bathroom instead of a bedpan if she first kneeled and asked permission. A couple of weeks after Colleen signed the slave contract, Hooker gave her a typed registration card, which he said she must keep on her at all times. Colleen Stan was now officially Kay Powers. The Hookers would now refer to her only as Kay. Janice was still uneasy about Colleen's presence in their home. After nine months, she'd grown used to the girl being held as a hostage and forced into slave labor and torture sessions. That's not what bothered her most. What weighed heavy on her was that her husband would prefer Kay. In February 1978, while pregnant with her second child, Janice tested her husband's loyalty. She wondered if he would break his promise and have sex with Kay. So one night, she asked him if he wanted to bring her upstairs to their bed to have sex. He immediately left the room and went to get Kay. He tied her to the bed with her blindfold still on and began to rape her. Janice became so upset, she ran to the bathroom and vomited. She started crying and threatened to leave him. He finally calmed her down and promised he'd never do it again. He said he only did it because he thought that's what she wanted. From then on, Hooker continued raping Colleen, but only when Janice was away. Janice wasn't the only one worried about Kay being discovered, especially since she was now allowed out of the box. Cameron also worried about their neighbors. They lived right next door to their landlord, and there wasn't much privacy. So they purchased an acre of land about five miles outside of town off Pershing Road. There were no neighbors to worry about now. They placed a single-wide mobile home on the property. 
This is where they would live for the next six years. There was no basement, of course, so Cameron Hooker came up with another project to help secure their captive. He built another box for Colleen, and when she was taken to their new house, Hooker led her into the master bedroom. A large waterbed, upholstered in black fabric on its headboard and sides, sat in the middle of the room. The bed frame was on top of a high wooden pedestal. A hole had been cut into the pedestal at the foot of the bed. Hooker had built the bed and the frame himself. He directed Colleen to look inside. Under the bed, he'd built another box. This is where you'll be staying now, he told her. He made her crawl through the hole and into the box underneath the waterbed. The sleeping bag she'd been lying on top of for nine months had been laid on the bottom of the box. There was also a bedpan inside. Just those two items and nothing more. The box was smaller than the last one he'd built. It was very tight, and the horrible feeling of claustrophobia washed over her once more. Only two air holes were cut into the frame with the blow dryer rigged up to circulate the air from outside. It was placed right near where her head would lay. Once she crawled inside, there was barely enough room to turn over. She would be forced to lay flat for as long as she was locked in the box. She lay down on the sleeping bag as she was told. A wooden board was placed over the opening she'd crawled in through, and the last thing she heard before she was left in the pitch-black, confined space was the board being slid over the opening and bolted shut. That will do it for the first part of this three-part episode. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'd like to invite you to join me for a true crime podcast meetup next month. I'll be co-hosting a get-together along with Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y podcast in San Jose, California on Thursday, February 22nd. Get all the details in the show notes or on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Come out and join us for a drink, take some photos with the podcasters, and talk true crime. I'd love to meet you. I'll be back next week with part two of this story, so make sure to subscribe or follow Once Upon a Crime so you don't miss an episode. If you're a Patreon member, you can listen early and ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and join. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Additional research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.